excuse me. Test, test, test. Okay. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 6th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. And yes, I had to look. I honestly thought that I would finish 1 Thessalonians this evening, but instead I will only finish chapter 4 which we had begun last week, and leave all of chapter 5 for next week, if Yahweh God is willing. So tonight we are really only going to discuss six verses. But these six verses are the famous rapture passage, so often cited by the Judaized denominations, the marginal Christians of the Judaized denominations. In the minds of denominational Christians. God is in some sort of race with the devil and just can't seem to be able to get his Christians out of the world as they die in wars, as they die of cancer, and as they die from the criminal beasts among us. For nearly 200 years now, they are awaiting for a free ride to heaven, and it never comes. But Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen and John Hagee get fatter and richer. In fact, John Hagee so fat, God will not be able to rapture him without a crane. This is our presentation of Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, part 4, and it's subtitled, The Rapture of the Saints, 
with a question mark at the end. So far in our presentations of Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, we have seen Paul express to his readers that their acceptance and conduct in the gospel of Christ was itself an assurance that they were indeed the elect of God. We took that opportunity to discuss some of the history establishing that these Thessalonians, like the other recipients of Paul's epistles, had descended from the Israelites of the Old Testament. Then, where Paul had discussed the persecutions which the Christians of both Judea and Thessalonica had undergone, the Thessalonians being his audience, we took an opportunity to demonstrate that the historicity of the early persecutions of Christians in the days of Claudius and Nero was indeed an established historical fact. Following that, we took the opportunity to demonstrate how Paul's advice to the Thessalonians, which he gives in chapters 3 and 4 of the epistle, represented the core of something which in another context we may call positive Christianity. Doing this, we demonstrated that Paul's exhortations in Christ had certainly represented ideas which were fully amenable to the preservation of our race and of our white Christian nations. Doing this, we also hope to have demonstrated that the things which Paul had advised were things which only Jews, who are the eternal enemies of Christ, could possibly oppose. Therefore, by opposing true Christianity, one is actually taking sides with the devil, and by attacking true Christians, racially conscious Christians, which are covenant Christians or identity Christians, by attacking true Christians, one is doing the handiwork of the Jews, something which the pagans of the first centuries of the Christian era had also done. In last week's presentation, I must admit that I did make one minor error, which I have since corrected. Just finishing presentations of the prison epistles of Paul, Philippians, Ephesians, and Colossians, I must have forgotten my place and at one point made a comment which imagined Paul to be in Rome here. But here in his writing of Thessalonians, Paul is in Corinth and would not be in Rome for several years, so I apologize for the error. Now, in the middle of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we are up to the point in Paul's epistle, which contains the famous so-called rapture passage, which is really a rather enigmatic description by Paul of some of the things that Christians can expect of the second advent of Christ. And in reality, it has nothing to do with any so-called rapture, as we certainly hope to demonstrate. First, however, we will address some of the claims of the rapture cult adherents themselves and refute them as well. From what we understand, not all of the mainstream denominational sects of churchianity actually believe in a rapture, but many of them do 
and some of those which do are among the largest and most popular of the denominational sects. Rapture beliefs take various forms, such as a pre-tribulation rapture, a post-tribulation rapture, and even a so-called secret rapture. Several decades ago, there was a there was published a series of 16 popular novels, which was generally known as the Left Behind series. Altogether, these novels sold over 65 million copies and were probably read much more avidly than the Bible itself. This series also spawned an industry of sequels by other writers, several movies, and at least one series of video games. Written under the guise of Christianity, these novels and the associated media which they encouraged are themselves fully characteristic of Mystery Babylon and are a part of the problem rather than helping anyone to understand the ultimate solution. We are not going to discuss the many different views of the so-called rapture, mainly because we are certain from our own study of scripture that there is absolutely no such thing as a rapture. So, since none of the beliefs in a rapture have any merit, there is no point in discussing any of them in particular. And because of the prevailing views of such a rapture, we must say that it is difficult to discuss them without also addressing the folly of what we would call futurism, where instead we must hold to the correct historicist view of the fulfillment of prophetic scripture. In fact, in all of their confusion over the rapture, Many rapture proponents even imagine that there are two second comings because they cannot reconcile their imagined rapture with the coming of Christ for the destruction of the wicked. In several of his writings, including his Watchman's Teaching Letter, number 131, from March of 2009, our dear friend Clifton Emmeheiser explained that John Nelson Darby, an influential 19th century Christian writer of the so-called Plymouth Brethren, was generally given credit for the modern concepts of both futurism and the pre-tribulation rapture. But Clifton also went on to show that futurism, futurism existed before that, futurism being the method of prophetic interpretation which projects many prophecies concerning the Antichrist, the Beast, the Mystery Babylon, far into the future, far detached from other historical events, which have indeed been fulfilled in history. And Clifton went on to show that that method of prophetic interpretation was indeed found in the writings of the somewhat earlier Jesuit priest, Emmanuel Lacunza. But more recently, we have also shown that some of the ideas supporting futurism did appear in various prophetic interpretations of the early Christian writers called the 
Anti-Nicene Fathers, the church writers from before the time of the Council of Nicaea. However, while they saw a period of tribulation by an Antichrist in their own future, they certainly did not develop some of the heresies manifest in the later futurism of Darby. Some of the advocates of a pre-tribulation rapture also claim to have found support for such a belief in the writings of the Anti-Nicene Fathers. It is those which we will fully discredit tonight. They find these particularly in the writings of the 2nd century Bishop Irenaeus and the 3rd century Cyprian. But an examination of the passages which they cite from those writers demonstrate that once their context is fully understood, they certainly do not support any so-called rapture. They also cite a work which presumably belonged to the Nicene era, 4th century writer Ephraim the Syrian. However, an examination of that work shows it to be spurious from a later collection of writing attributed to a so-called pseudo-Ephraim, and neither does it support their rapture. So we shall begin by disassembling the claims of these dissemblers. First we shall discuss the passage from Irenaeus, which the rapture enthusiasts misuse in order to support their position. And that's found in his work Against Heresies, Book 5, Chapter 29, where Irenaeus is speaking of the Antichrist. And Irenaeus says, In the previous books I have set forth the causes for which God permitted these things to be made. And it pointed out, that all such have been created for the benefit of that human nature which is saved, ripening for immortality, that which is possessed of its own free will and its own power, and preparing and rendering it more adapted for eternal subjection to God. And therefore the creation is suited to the wants of man, for man was not made for its sake, but the creation for the sake of man. Those nations, however, who did not of themselves raise up their eyes unto heaven, nor return thanks to their Maker, nor wish to behold the light of truth, but who were like blind mice concealed in the depths of ignorance, the word justly reckons as waste water from a sink, and as the turning weight of a balance, in fact as nothing so far useful and serviceable to the just, as stubble conduces towards the growth of the wheat, and its straw, by means of combustion, serves for working gold. And therefore, and this is the passage in question, and therefore, when in the end the church shall suddenly be caught up from this, it is said, there shall be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning, neither shall be. For this is the last contest of the righteous, in which, when they overcome, they are crowned with incorruption. 
and the rapture enthusiasts, and we have seen this in the work of several writers advocating the idea of a rapture, the rapture enthusiasts usually only quote the very end of this passage, and where Irenaeus says caught up, they find support for their pre-tribulation rapture. But that is not necessarily the case. Here in this passage, Irenaeus also writes of the last contest of the righteous, which the righteous would obviously avoid if they were somehow to be raptured away. Did Irenaeus really mean that the church would be taken into heaven? Or did he mean that the church would be caught up by being lifted out of the mean position in which it was to be found. And may I bear in mind the fact that when Irenaeus says church, he means the assembly of Christians throughout the Greco-Roman oikumene, because when he wrote in the second century, there was no Roman Catholic Church, and there was no organized denomination. We would assert that Irenaeus really meant that the church would be lifted out of the mean position in which it was to be found. The answer is in the very next chapter, but the rapture enthusiasts evidently do not read that far from Book 5, Chapter 30, of the very same work, Against Heresies, where Irenaeus is speaking of the second beast in the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, but he, meaning Christ, through the Apostle John, but he indicates the number of the name now, that when this man comes, we may avoid him. And yes, Irenaeus was believing that the prophecy referred to a particular individual, being aware who he is. The name, however, is suppressed because it is not worthy of being proclaimed by the Holy Spirit. For if it had been declared by him, he, meaning the Antichrist, ostensibly, might perhaps continue for a long period. But now, as he was and is not, and shall ascend out of the abyss, and goes into perdition. As one who has no existence, so neither has his name been declared, for the name of that which does not exist is not proclaimed. But when this Antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world, he will reign for three years and six months, and sit in the temple at Jerusalem, and then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds, in the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire, but bringing in for the righteous the times of the kingdom, that is, the rest, the hallowed seventh day, and restoring to Abraham the promised inheritance, in which kingdom the Lord declared that many coming from the east and from the west should sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now we see the elements of the modern belief of futurism is indeed found in some of Irenaeus's work, that he understood the revelation to be describing those things. We do not agree with that, but that is not our point here. 
Irenaeus envisioned a kingdom for the righteous on earth, not in heaven, with Christ coming from the clouds to destroy the wicked and bring in that kingdom, in that manner fulfilling the promise to Abraham. The people taking part in the kingdom would not come from the clouds of heaven, but from the east and the west, referring ostensibly to the scattered children of Israel. Therefore the passage from that same work, which immediately precedes this one, cannot be used to promote a pre-tribulation rapture, as Irenaeus must have had something very different in mind when he used the words translated as caught up. And then he says that this was the last contest of the righteous being caught up they would not engage in that contest. And we will see later that they certainly were, according to Scripture, they certainly are meant to engage in that contest. That's strike one for the rapture. The next passage, which the rapture enthusiasts misuse, is from Cyprian. And this is a pretty bad one. From his treatise entitled, On the Morality... But the part of the passage they employ is very small, usually only where it says, Lo, the world is changing and passing away, and witnesses to its ruin, not now by its age, but by the end of things. And do you not give thanks to God? Do you not congratulate yourself that by an earlier departure you are taken away? and delivered from the shipwrecks and disasters that are imminent. Now, quoting these few sentences to advance their rapture hypothesis, we have seen writers who even neglect to give the name of the treatise from which it comes. They refer to it only as Treatise 7. But it has a title. That title is On the mortality. Rather, they focus only on the words, do you not congratulate yourself that by an earlier departure you are taken away, being delivered from the shipwrecks and disasters that are imminent. But, Cyprian really speaks of their death. He speaks of their death before those times come. Cyprian is speaking of being taken away by mortality and not by some magic rapture. So here we shall prove the context of Cyprian's statement by citing a fuller portion of the work from Cyprian's Treatise 7 on the mortality, chapters 24 and 25. It is for him to wish to remain long in the world, whom the world delights, whom this life, flattering and deceiving, invites by the enticements of earthly pleasure. Again, since the world hates the Christian, why do you love that which hates you? And why do you not rather follow Christ, who both redeemed you and loves you? John, in his epistle, cries and says, exhorting, that we should not follow carnal desires and love the world. 
Love not the world, says he, neither the things which are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, which is not of the Father, but of the lust of the world. And the world shall pass away, and the lust thereof. But he who does the will of God abides forever, even as God abides forever. And Cyprian goes on to say, Rather, beloved brethren, with a sound mind, with a firm faith, with a robust virtue, let us be prepared for the whole will of God, laying aside the fear of death. Laying aside the fear of death. Let us think on the immortality which follows. By this, let us show ourselves to be what we believe that we do not grieve over the departure of those dear to us, and that when the day of our summons shall arrive, we come without delay and without resistance to the Lord when he himself calls us, meaning when we are called to death. And this, as it ought always to be done by God's servants, much more ought to be done now, now that the world is collapsing and is oppressed with the tempests of mischievous ills, in order that we who see that terrible things have begun, and know that still more terrible things are imminent, may regard it as the greatest advantage to depart from it as quickly as possible, speaking about death, that the Christian not only shouldn't be afraid of death, but should look forward to death. If in your dwelling the walls were shaking with age, the roofs above you were trembling, and the house, now worn out and wearied, were threatening an immediate destruction to its structure crumbling with age, would you not with all speed depart? If, when you were on a voyage, an angry and raging tempest, by the waves violently aroused, foretold the coming shipwreck, would you not sit quickly seek the harbor? Lo, the world is changing and passing away, and witnesses to its ruin, not now by its age, but by the end of things. And do you not give God thanks? Do you not congratulate yourself that by an earlier departure you are taken away and delivered from the shipwrecks and disasters that are imminent. Writing in the time of the decline of the Roman Empire, which Irenaeus also properly imagined Daniel to have prophesied, Cyprian in his own time saw that now the world is collapsing and spoke of the fear of death rather than any rapture but the fear of death which took men in an early departure. The departure of which Cyprian speaks is likened to an aging and crumbling dwelling, in a metaphor of the aging process of men. So this passage in Cyprian does not support any imagined version of the so-called rapture. In fact, elsewhere, Cyprian had taught precisely the opposite just like Irenaeus had taught about the last contest of the righteous from Cyprian in his Epistle 55 to the people of Phibaris. 
an exhortation to modernum, where he clearly refutes the so-called rapture in his description of the battles which Christians are to face. The rapturists, the teachers of the rapture, are actually escapists. They imagine that they will avoid the battles that Christians are told that they would have to face. Cyprian and evidently Irenaeus were not among their number. Their work cannot be taken out of context to support this crazy so-called rapture. Cyprian, to the people abiding at Thebaris, greeting. I had indeed thought, beloved brethren, and prayerfully desired, if the state of things and the condition of the times permitted, in conformity with what you frequently desired, myself to come to you, and being present with you, then to strengthen the brotherhood with such moderate powers of exhortation as I possess. But since I am detained by such urgent affairs, that I have not the power to travel far from this place, and to be long absent from the people over whom, by divine mercy, I am placed, I have written in the meantime this letter, to be to you in my stead. For as, by the condescension of the Lord instructing me, I am very often instigated and warned, I ought to bring under your conscience also the anxiety of my warning. For you ought to know and to believe and to hold it for certain that the day of affliction has begun to hang over our heads, and the end of the world and the time of the Antichrist to draw near, so that we must all stand prepared for the battle, nor consider anything but the glory of life eternal and the crown of the confession of the Lord and not regard those things which are coming as being such as were those which had passed away. A severer and a fiercer fight is now threatening for which the soldiers of Christ ought to prepare themselves with uncorrupted faith and robust courage, considering that they drink the cup of Christ's blood daily, a reference to the cup of communion with one's brethren, for the reason that they themselves also may be able to shed their blood for Christ, to die for those brethren. This is certainly the same as the last contest of the righteous spoken of by Irenaeus. And he goes on to say, For this is to wish to be found with Christ, to imitate that which Christ both taught and did, according to the Apostle John, who said, He that saith he abides in Christ ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Moreover, the blessed Apostle Paul exhorts and teaches, saying, We are God's children, but if children, then heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together.
which things must all now be considered by us, that no one may desire anything from the world that is now dying, but we may follow Christ, who both lives forever and quickens his servants who are established in the faith of his name. For there comes the time, beloved brethren, which our Lord long ago foretold and taught us was approaching, saying, The time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God a service. And these things they will do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember them that I told you of them. Nor let anyone wonder that we are harassed with constant persecutions and continually tried with decreasing increasing afflictions. When the Lord before predicted that these things would happen in the last times, and has instructed us for the warfare by the teaching and exhortation of his words, Peter also, his apostle, has taught that persecutions occur for the sake of our being proved, and that we also should, by the example of righteous men who have gone before us, be joined to the love of God by death and sufferings. For he wrote this in his epistle and said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is a thing happened unto you. But as long as you partake in Christ's sufferings, rejoice in all things, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached in the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the name of the majesty of the power of the Lord resteth on you, which indeed on their part is blasphemed, but on our part is glorified. Now the apostles taught us those things, and this is still Cyprian. Now the apostles taught us those things which they themselves also learnt from the Lord's precepts and the heavenly commands. The Lord himself thus strengthening us and saying, There is no man that has left house or land or parents or brethren or sisters or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive sevenfold more in this present time and in the world to come life everlasting. And again he says, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and shall separate you from their company, and shall cast you out, and shall reproach your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy. Behold, your reward is great in heaven. So, Cyprian, in the third century, saw the coming of the Antichrist, thought that the proverbial poop was about to hit the fan. But he was not an escapist. He didn't anticipate a rapture to be taken away before the rule of the Antichrist so that he could avoid, and his Christian assembly could avoid the trials to come. But rather, he taught that Christians must be willing to face those trials head on and to fight. There's no rapture in Cyprian. 
Cyprian, imagining the end of the age with the inevitable collapse of Rome, as Irenaeus also had imagined, taught Christians to stand and fight, to be tried in the fires, and to die for Christ, as Irenaeus also envisioned the last contest of the righteous. That's two strikes for the rapture. Cyprian did not teach that Christians would avoid all such things with some sort of pre-tribulation rapture, and the rapture enthusiasts who abuse a single passage from Cyprian's writings to advance their agenda are nothing less than dishonest liars. They, just like they pick and choose passages from scripture to support their hair-brained and evil agendas, they pick and choose similar passages from early Christian writers, which are also obviously taken out of context and misused. There's an article that was my primary object of scorn writing this, but many websites repeat these ideas. And these ideas probably did not originate here. There's an article at a website called beginningandend.com titled, What Did Ancient Church Fathers Believe About the Rapture? And they're absolutely lying, as we have just proven from Irenaeus and from Cyprian. There is one other presumably ancient writing which the rapture enthusiasts, and I say presumably because of some of the controversy swirling around a certain Latin translation or translation of a Latin manuscript of pseudo-Ephraim. So that's sort of just like a clue in ahead of time. There is one other presumably ancient writing which the rapture enthusiasts use to uphold their claims. And that is a treatise called On the Last Times, attributed to the 4th century writer Ephraim the Syrian, who is also known as Ephraim of Nisibis and who was one of the most respected writers of early Syrian Christianity. The passage in question is purported to say, and I quote, For all the saints and elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come, and are taken to the Lord, lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. And that's supposedly from a translation of a Latin manuscript. But once again, the rapture enthusiasts who quote this passage fail to make a full disclosure. Many of them fail to admit that it is widely held that this work does not belong to Ephraim the Syrian at all, but was actually one example of a plethora of later literature, which is known to have been forged and rather purposely attributed to the popular writer. While the dating of this piece of pseudo-Ephraim literature varies from the 4th to the 6th centuries, it is reasonable that it was written before the Islamic conquest of Syria, which occurred in the mid-7th century. However, 
excuse me, not even the passage in question explicitly supports the rapture as it is imagined by the rapture enthusiasts. In the end, since we have fully discredited their claims in reference to the other citations which they make from Irenaeus and Cyprian, this is all which they have left to cling to, but they do not even have this. The passage from Pseudo-Ephraim, which seems to support their rapture theory, comes from a translation of a Latin manuscript. But we're talking about Ephraim the Syrian. The corresponding passage from the Syrian manuscript, which has been translated by John C. Reeves at the University of North Carolina, reads quite differently. And that says, and this is the same corresponding passage, and it says, pronouncing the good fortune of the deceased who had avoided the calamity. Pseudo-Ephraim is talking about the same thing that Cyprian was talking about. Those who die before the Lord comes. The same thing Paul addressed in several places, including this passage of 1 Thessalonians, which we are about to discuss. Pronouncing the good fortune of the deceased who had avoided the calamity, Blessed are you, for you were born away to the grave, and hence you escaped from the afflictions. Sounds familiar. Sounds just like Cyprian. Sounds very similar to Paul's admonitions to the Thessalonians and to the Corinthians that those who died in Christ would not be behind those who remained living at Christ's return. Any bit not one whit would they be behind those who survive. That's what Pseudo-Ephraim's addressing. That's what Cyprian had addressed. Then later, in that same treatise, Pseudo-Ephraim, in John C. Reeves's translation, where we readily find that it does not support a rapture at all, we read, quote, in his gospel when he said, those days will be shortened for the sake of the elect and the saints, speaking of the Gospel of John. And when he has harassed the whole of creation, meaning a reference to the Antichrist, when the son of destruction has bent it to his will, and this here is an interpretation of Revelation chapter 11 and the two witnesses, but we'll read it. We don't agree with it, but we will read it. Enoch and Elijah will be sent, that they might persuade the evil one. With a gentle question, the saints will come before him, in order to expose the son of destruction before the assembly surrounding him. If you are indeed God, tell us what we ask of you. Where is the place that you have hidden the elders, Elijah and Enoch? The evil one will respond and say to the saints at that time, When I wish it, they are in heights, or again, should I choose, they are within the sea. 
for I have authority over habitation, since there is no other God apart from me, and I can make anything on earth and also in heaven. So while we do not agree with the postulations of pseudo-Ephraim concerning the two witnesses and the nature of the Antichrist, its writer clearly made a depiction of the saints being on earth at the time of the end simultaneous with the rule of an imagined Antichrist or evil one. That supports the Syriac version of the manuscript over the Latin version, which the rapture cult advances to fit its agenda where it speaks of departure from death. Departure by cause of natural death. So in the end, we see that the rapture enthusiasts do not have any support from any early Christian writers for their harebrained and anti-scriptural teachings. The rapture has just struck out. Indeed, the first promoter of a pre-tribulation rapture was not Irenaeus. The first promoter was not Cyprian. The first promoter was not Ephraim the Syrian and was not even pseudo-Ephraim. The bullpen is empty now. It may as well be the popular John Nelson Darby, who seems to have simply invented it, although there are competing claims for slightly earlier churchmen. Other early and notable Christian writers present ideas in their prophetic interpretations which refute the concept of a rapture, such as Lactantius in his The Divine Institutes, Book 7, and Victorinus in his Commentary on the Apocalypse for Chapters 6 and 7. We may expand <laughs> on this presentation in the near future to present a fuller refutation of the claims of the rapture cult. But to, for tonight's purposes, we'll leave Lactantius and Victorinus out of it. For now, however, we shall commence with our presentation of Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians and an exposition of the scripture most commonly abused by rapture enthusiasts to advance their ridiculous claims. This second section, I'm sorry, this next section of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is the only passage they have in order to support those claims outside of minor roles attributed to parts of 1 Corinthians chapters 15, which we will cite at length tonight, the opening verses of John 14, and perhaps the warnings of Christ in Matthew chapter 24, where he says, Then two shall be in the field, the one shall be taken, and the other left, which are repeated in Luke chapter 17. But none of these passages actually describe any presumed rapture. 
we will speak more on Matthew chapter 24 in the last part of our presentation of 1 Thessalonians when we talk about the rapture of the wicked. Here it must also be noted that Paul of Tarsus is actually making addenda to this epistle where he is answering certain questions that the Thessalonians themselves had asked, which is evident where he began chapter 4 by saying, So so for what remains, brethren? And encouraging them and counseling them on their earthly walk in Christ. Paul counseled them to avoid certain sins, to work with their hands, and to be self-sufficient, having no need of anyone and walking decently compared with, quote-unquote, those outside. Now here, in the 13th verse, he changes the subject to discuss those who are already deceased, of whom the Thessalonians must have also been concerned, and he describes their fate at the promised second advent of Christ. And he says, Now we do not wish you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are falling asleep, and some manuscripts have those having fallen asleep, in order that you would not be grieved, just as the rest who have no expectation. By mentioning the rest who have no expectation, where the Greek word elpis may also have been translated as hope, as the King James Version has it. Paul is referring to any of the scattered children of Israel who had not had the opportunity of hearing the gospel of Christ. The Thessalonians, and the proof is in the context, the Thessalonians must have been concerned that their own dead kindred not having had the opportunity to hear the gospel, would not be preserved in Christ. This concern obviously comes from an ancient misunderstanding of the admonition to believe in Jesus and be saved. As we may read, for instance, in Luke chapter 8, where Christ says of certain seed in the parable of the sower, those that fell by the side of the road, that those by the wayside are they that hear, then cometh the devil, and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Sadly, this understanding of those words persists unto this very day. Here Paul is reassuring the Thessalonians that all of the dead in Christ shall arise, whether or not they had heard the gospel during their lifetimes. Preservation of the Adamic spirit and preservation in this life are two different subjects which Christians often confound. For instance, in Acts chapter 16, there is the jailer who sees the miraculous events surrounding the apostles and he asks them, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? And then we read in Acts 16.31, And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus, 
and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. So, if the jailer himself believes in Jesus, how can that assure the salvation of his house, meaning the people of his household? <clears throat> because this salvation is not a reference to the salvation of the Spirit, something of which the jailer, being a Roman pagan when he had asked the question, had no concept. Rather, when a man follows Christ, he keeps his commandments, and keeping his commandments, he departs from the ways of the sinful world, which is an assurance that he will not be destroyed in the judgment of God when it comes upon the world. The man, being head of the household, has the authority to force the other members of his house to keep God's law as well, and thus assure their preservation in this world. That is the salvation referenced in these verses. However, for the life to come, there is a greater assurance, and Paul himself had said in Romans chapter 11, that even as you were at one time disobedient to Yahweh, but are now shown mercy, speaking to scattered and alienated Israelites, due to their disobedience, speaking of the remnant Israelites in Judea, in that manner, these also are now in opposition to your mercy, so that they may have mercy shown to them. Therefore Yahweh has enclosed all the scattered Israelites and the remnant Israelites. Yahweh has enclosed all in disobedience that he may show mercy to all. So the mercy of Yahweh God is dispensed upon the children of Israel whether they believe Jesus or not. That is how Paul says in Romans chapter 4 that the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring, to all of the seed. As the scripture says in Isaiah chapter 45, Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. Then it also says, In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. This is the salvation of which Paul speaks here in 1 Thessalonians. Salvation of the Spirit through which participation in the resurrection of the dead is both possible and promised. In that manner, this passage relates to Paul to what Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and that epistle was written several years after this one, where he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. This is from verse 51. We shall not all fall asleep, but we shall all be changed in an instant, in a dart of an eye, with the last trumpet, for it shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, 
and we shall all be changed. This decay wants to be clothed in incorruptibility, and this mortal to be clothed in immortality. And when this decay shall have put on incorruptibility, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then the word that has been written shall come to pass. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your string? If one of the children of God dies, death wins. In this manner, Paul continues, For if we believe that Yahshua had died and rose up, in this manner Yahweh also through Yahshua will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And here we may see when the real rapture happens, which is when we as individuals die and part from our physical bodies. It is for that reason Paul wrote that he was willing to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And earlier in that same chapter he said, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens it is they the dead who shall appear with Christ as he returns resurrection is not through the physical body as so many Roman Catholics and other relatively superstitious people believe oh don't cremate me bury me so that my body can rise up from the grave well who the hell wants a body full of worms to rise up from the grave as Paul had explained a little earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in this way also is the resurrection of the dead. This is from verse 42. It is sown in decay. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual. And just as it is written, the first man, Adam, came into a living soul, the last Adam into a life-producing spirit. But the spiritual was not first, rather the natural, then the spiritual. The first man from out of earth, of soil, the second man from out of heaven. As he of soil, such as those also who are of soil, and as he in heaven, such as those also who are in heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of that of soil, we shall also bear the likeness of that of heaven, which we do, which we do not do until after we bear the likeness of that of soil. We have our physical life first, but our real life, the treasure in earthen vessels, is the indestructible spirit of God, which is within us, which returns to God when we die, so that we may dwell with him.
Christ brings the dead with him when he returns, who are ostensibly of the heavenly bodies which Paul describes. This is the last trumpet, where the dead shall be raised incorruptible, as Paul had also described it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is also found in Jude, where the apostle quotes from the writings of Enoch, and he says, Behold! The Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. So how can the proponents of the rapture cult assert that the living are going to be taken up into the heavens to see Jesus there? The error of this assertion is especially manifest when we see in Jude exactly what will happen when the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints, where it then says to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's the rapture of the wicked. This does not sound like a party in heaven. Rather, it sounds like the marriage supper of the Lamb here on earth, just as it is described in Revelation chapter 19. Those in Christ, still on earth, take part in that judgment as well, as it says in Micah, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, and as Paul told the Corinthians in his second epistle to them, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. The third witness establishing this fact is Revelation 18.6, where after the children of Israel are called to come out of mystery Babylon which has fallen, they are also told to reward her even as she rewarded you and double under her, double according to her works. In the cup which she is filled, fill to her double. This is that last contest of the saints, which Irenaeus had perceived from Scripture. Now, how could these things be fulfilled if the children of God are off in space, but rather... God is coming here to earth as Jesus Christ, for he is God. However, Paul's message here is one of encouragement, so he delays any reference to the coming vengeance until a little later in this epistle, and here he continues by saying, For this we say to you by word of the Prince, that we, the living, those re left remaining until the coming of the prince, no way would come before those who have fallen asleep. Or in other words, those Christians who have heard the gospel are no better than all of the dead children of God who had not heard the gospel while they lived in this world. So Paul told them here not to grieve over those who had died without this Christian expectation. Likewise, he spoke of the dead who had not heard the gospel again a little earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this time in verse 19. If only in this life have we had hope in Christ... 
We are the most pitiable of all mankind. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who are sleeping. Indeed, since death is through a man, restoration of the dead is also through a man. Just as in Adam all die, then in that manner in Christ all shall be produced alive. But each in his own order, the first fruit, Christ, then those of the anointed at his arrival, then the consummation, when he should hand over the kingdom to Yahweh, who is also the Father, when he shall abolish all rule and all license and power. Indeed, it is necessary for him to reign until he should place all of the enemies under his feet, the last enemy abolished his death. Therefore, all are subjected under his feet. Now, until it may be said that it is evident that all things have been subjected, because outside of the subjecting of all things to himself, and until all things are in subjection to him, then also the Son himself will be subjected in the subjecting of all things to himself, in order that Yahweh may be all things among all. Otherwise, what else would they do? Would they who are immersing themselves on behalf of the dead be doing, if the dead are not raised at all? And then Paul asks in surprise, knowing the futility of it, why are they even immersed on behalf of the dead? Ostensibly, the Corinthians thought that they had to be baptized on behalf of the dead, having the same concern for their dead kindred who had not heard the gospel that the Thessalonians must have displayed in order to merit Paul's answers here. Baptism on behalf of the dead is certainly not necessary, since the assurance is sound regardless of the actions of men. Paul continues to describe this resurrection, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, because the prince himself would command, by a chief messenger's voice, and with a trumpet of Yahweh shall descend from heaven, and those dead among the number of the anointed shall rise up first. And the word archangelos is literally chief messenger but typically translated as archangel. The word appears elsewhere, or archangel, I'm sorry. The word appears elsewhere in the New Testament only in verse chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 9 of the epistle of Jude. As Paul had written in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just as in Adam all die, then in that manner in Christ shall all be produced alive but each in his own order, the first fruit, Christ, then those of the anointed at his arrival. So here we read that the dead among the number of the anointed shall rise up first. Evidently, one does not have to hear the gospel and believe in Jesus in this life in order to be saved, because here it is clearly stated that all of those who died even without ever hearing the gospel, shall be resurrected and shall not have any disadvantage 
compared to these Christians who did hear the gospel, as Paul says that those left remaining until the coming of the prince, no way would come before those who had fallen asleep. And Paul said this in reference to those who are dear to the Thessalonians, but who were already dead at the time when the Thessalonians themselves had only just received the gospel. So they get to get saved without believing in Jesus. The admonitions to believe in Jesus and be saved have no bearing on the promise of eternal life. Rather, one reason such admonitions were made was because believing Jesus means keeping his commandments, which in turn keeps one safe from the consequences of the sins of the world. But they were also made because such a belief was an assurance that one was one of the sheep and not one of the wolves which could not be saved, so long as one lived consistently with the belief. And for that reason, Paul said in reference to the gospel, once again, even earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, by which, speaking to the gospel, speaking of the gospel, by which also you are saved if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. The gospel message was meant to separate the wheat from the tares. So wherever we see those exhortations to the faith in scripture, they must be understood in their own historical context and not in the presumptuous context which is asserted by modern evangelicals. Paul continues to describe the advent of Christ and the resurrection of the dead, and he adds as his conclusion, and we will read verses 17 and 18, Then we, the living, who are remaining, at once with them shall be carried off in clouds for a meeting with the prince in air, and in that manner always with the prince we shall be. So encourage one another with these words. Well, if we're always with the prince up in space, then we can't arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. We can't pay unto fallen Babylon double as she has rewarded us, provided that we're all Christians. And here Paul uses several metaphors, of which the meanings may be argued. However, we shall see that we do not have to interpret this passage as if it describes some sort of rapture. In fact, interpreting this passage to support a rapture defies many other scriptures which refute the concept of a rapture. Furthermore, where Paul uses the same metaphors elsewhere, those passages also deny the validity of such an interpretation here. First, we shall examine the phrase, carried off in clouds. The word rendered as carried off is a form of the Greek verb arpazo. Strong's number 726, where the King James Version has caught up, and that's really an elaboration on the definition. 
But the word means merely to snatch away or carry off, to seize hastily, or to snatch up. You see um, an item that you covet laying on somebody's table. You snatch it up. You don't bring it to the clouds. You put it in your pocket. You put it in your pocket and try to sneak off with it. But the word doesn't have, it doesn't bear any indication by itself of ascending to anywhere as it is interpreted. They, the denominational Christians, interpret this word as if Jesus is reaching down out of the clouds and snatching people up into them. And that's, um, that's cartoon religion. That's all I could say about that. It's like a cartoon religion. It's like the Jews on Saturday mornings made cartoons out of Jesus and teach it his doctrine. The Greek phrase, and Nephiles is literally in clouds. The Greek word is Nephile, Strong's number 3507. It is literally in clouds, but there is no definite article indicating that Paul meant particular clouds as the clouds or the clouds of heaven in the sky. Rather, the word has many metaphorical meanings. Referring to people, it could mean in throngs, referring to clouds of people, as Paul had used the related root word nephos, which also means a cloud, in Hebrews chapter 12, referring to a great cloud of witnesses. Both nephos and nephile were used metaphorically to describe clouds of death, clouds of tears, clouds of sorrow, clouds of sleep, Clouds of battle, and even resulting from battle, clouds of, I'm sorry, clouds of blood. Therefore, the reference to clouds here does not necessarily refer to clouds in the sky or any supernatural act. Rather, Paul could just as easily and more naturally be describing a rapid movement of great numbers of people that you would be snatched up by these thongs, that you would be carried off by clouds of people. Next, we must examine the phrase, in air. And this is where they're really going to look stupid. The phrase in air, the Greek words ice ira or ice ahira, and again the definite article is missing. There is no the in the air. But using this term alone refutes the notion that Paul refers to the heavens. By itself, the phrase ice ahira is most literally into air, but only in English does it suggest a supernatural act on the surface of the phrase.
Paul was well acquainted with Greek literature, which is fully demonstrated very often in his epistles, where he quotes or takes allusions from classical Greek writers. We see them in Titus chapter 1, Acts chapter 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. To the Greeks, the atmosphere was divided into three layers, and air was the lowest layer, the air around us. And yes, air is the Greek word as well as the English. It's only spelled a little differently. And the air was opposed to the ahether. The ahether, or the word from which we get the English word ether, was the upper atmosphere or the sky. And above the ether to the Greeks was the Uranus, the outermost atmosphere, or the heaven, or more properly in our modern dialect, the outer atmosphere, or even what we may call space. The word ahether does not appear in the New Testament, but the word air is used by Paul elsewhere. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, it's in 1 Corinthians chapters 9 and 14. The word also appears in Acts chapter 22 and in Revelation chapters 9 and 16. But nowhere in the New Testament does the use of the word air insist that it refers to the upper atmosphere of the planet. Wherever the reference is clear, it refers only to the air around us. Now, every time in the New Testament we see the phrase birds of the air or fowls of the air, a phrase which actually occurs quite often in the Gospels, the Greek word for air is not the Greek word air. It's the Greek word uranos, which is usually translated as heaven. So if the supposed meeting with the prince in the air referred to the place of the clouds in the sky, one would think that Paul would have used the same word which was used of the place of the birds in the sky, which is uranos, rather than using the word for the air around us. For another example, where Paul had described a man who may have been out of his body in the spiritual realm, that man was taken up into the third Uranos, or heaven, not into the air. Where Paul used the same term for air in Ephesians chapter 2, as he does here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we probably find the best insight into Paul's purpose for using the word. There, in Ephesians, it is certain that Paul used the term for air to describe the physical world as opposed to the spiritual world, both of which were equally real in Paul's rather enlightened perspective. Both Christ and Paul had referred to the enemies of Christ as the prince or princes of this world. In the Revelation we learn that the devil and his angels were cast out of heaven, and that their place was no longer found in heaven. Then, 
in the gospel. The devil said to Christ, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I will give it. Referring to all the kingdoms of the world in Luke chapter 4. Clearly, the devil and his angels are the princes of this world referred to in the gospel. As the Apostle John had warned in the closing verses of his first epistle, we know that we are from of God, and the whole society lies in the power of the evil one. Then, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul wrote concerning the past sins of his readers, who were also among the descendants of the ancient children of Israel. And he said to them, Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, using the same word for air as he did here. So here, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul had admonished his readers to await the Son of God from the heavens referring to the second advent of Christ. And here he informs them that they will meet with Christ in the air, the same air that the devil has power over, which is a reference to this physical world. Heaven is the realm of the birds of the sky, and the air is the realm of man, the lowest atmosphere in the cosmology of the Greeks. So wherever we see in the gospel, the birds of heaven, or the birds of the air. The word is Uranos, heaven, the realm of the birds, way over our heads. But the air is the realm of man. So with this, it should be entirely evident that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 does not describe a rapture of any sort. Rather, the promise of resurrection is a return to this physical world, as Yahweh said in Ezekiel chapter 37. Say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and I will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. And the sticks whereon thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations where they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall no more be two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, so shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And David my servant, meaning Christ, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments, and observe my statutes, and do them. 
and they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the nation shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel. When my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. The setting of the tabernacle, the setting of the sanctuary of Yahweh among the gathered children of Israel is precisely what Paul of Tarsus is describing in poetic terms here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But the tabernacle is Christ himself, as we learned in the Gospel of John, in chapter 2. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and now will rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. The rapture theology attempts to make not the word of God. For instance, as Christ instructed his disciples to pray, that things be on earth as they are in heaven. So the rapture theology also makes God himself impotent to in the world. God has to give up on his creation, only to rescue certain people from the wicked. Neither can it answer why the wicked are wicked. Therefore, in rapture theology, God is a failure. However, true Christians should know that God is no failure, and that ultimately they shall indeed have salvation here on earth. It's the wicked who are going to be taken away. In our next presentation, Yahweh willing, we hope to discuss the real rapture, the gathering of the tares, which is what Matthew chapter 24 truly describes in conjunction with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We will subtitle that program, The Rapture of the Wicked. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening, and good night.